0: Good morning, church. Would you join me in prayer as we begin our time in the Word together? Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your Lord's Day, for the chance to gather, to be in your house, to worship you, and to open your Word. Father, thank you for the worship this morning, for time to meditate and reflect upon your faithfulness and the fact that... The God that we read about in the Old Testament, the God who acts for his people, who delivers and who saves because of his grace, is the same God that we serve today. And so we're grateful for the chance to celebrate your faithfulness and who you are, even as we recognize our weakness and our failure in the pursuit of you. So Father, as we approach your word again today, would you once more Open our eyes to the message that you have communicated here. Help us to understand more about who you are and how we are to relate to you. And would we come away from this time with a greater appreciation for your love, for your holiness, and for the opportunity we have to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was listening to a chapel message from... um, my, my seminary, and one of my former professors used a quote in his message that I thought applied perfectly to our passage this morning. It wasn't the same passage, but the idea, I think, applies well to, to this passage as well. And so the quote came from a Prussian field marshal, uh, Friedrich von Moltke, or Henrik von Moltke. And the quote goes like this, No plan or no strategy survives first contact with the enemy. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. So von Moltke was uniquely equipped to give this quote and to speak to military strategy. Um, He had a long and storied career with the Prussian military. Um, He served with, uh, was kind of a contemporary with, Otto von Bismarck, who is, that's a name many of us probably would recognize more but the political aspirations that Bismarck articulated would not have been possible if it, wouldn't, if it hadn't been paired with the military genius of von Moltke. And so uh, his strategy relied upon uh, superior technology and advances in transportation that he utilized in his strategy against his foes. And even when facing inferior numbers, he was able to use those advantages to, uh, to defeat his enemy. And so, uh, through his strategy and through Bismarck's uh, political scheme, they really rewrote the map of Europe in the 18th century and set the stage for both World War One and World War Two through the things that they did. Um, I think my favorite thing that I that I discovered about him as I was reading was uh, he was said to be silent in seven languages. He was such a taciturn man that even though he knew seven different languages, he rarely spoke and, uh, and only spoke when was absolutely necessary. But to return to that quote for a minute, um, we can recognize the truth of that statement, and, and that statement has stood the test of time as something that is true. It doesn't matter how much planning or how much preparation goes into a battle. The moment that first shot is fired, you have no idea what's going to happen. The stress of of that event causes people to act in ways that are unpredictable and, and outside forces come into those battles that cause all plans to sometimes be for naught. And so that, that quote has been incorporated into popular culture, and perhaps some of you are more familiar with the iteration that Mike Tyson gave to that quote, which was, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. And maybe that encapsulates it a little bit better. I've never been hit in the mouth with a fist, but I have taken a soccer ball to the teeth or a volleyball spike to the teeth, and that does rattle you. So, But as we think about that idea that we see um, in our experience and in popular culture, um, something so common that can be encapsulated in in military strategy, in a sense, we see Moses dealing with that exact same phenomena here in the passage. Moses has experienced something akin to being hit in the mouth. Um, He's been rattled. All of his plans, everything that he had prepared for, did not prepare him for what he experienced in Exodus chapter 5. And so in our passage this morning, as we finish Exodus 5 and and move into Exodus 6, we're going to look at how Moses recovers from that event. How does he move forward from an event that completely shakes his worldview and rattles him to his core? And so as we look through this passage, we're going to finish chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, and those verses encapsulate Moses' complaint, his accusation against God. And then we're going to look at verses chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, which deal with God's response to Moses' accusation and his complaint. And then we'll finish the chapter looking at what the Lord commands Moses to do in response to that. So Moses' complaint, God's response, and then the action that the Lord commands in response to that. But before we get started in that, we have to remember where we came from. And so in, in Exodus chapter 5, if you remember last week, we dealt with Moses' first audience with Pharaoh. And that did not go as Moses had expected, did it? It was uh, a very disappointing conversation, we'd be putting it mildly. And so rather than freeing the people, rather than responding positively toward Moses' message, Pharaoh revealed that he was intractably opposed to the nation of Israel. And in fact, it didn't matter what they would ask or what request they would bring, he was bound to say no because he was absolutely opposed to them. Not only did he deny them the request that they asked, but he further increased their labor and brought more work upon them, making their existence even more miserable and and oppressing. And so the correlation we draw between that story and, and our current day is that the nation of Israel could not free themselves. There was nothing they could do in that scenario to improve their life or to make themselves better or to bring about their own salvation. Their only hope was for a deliverer to come who could redeem them and free them. There was nothing they could do to purchase their own salvation. And so in the same way, we view that in our own lives, where when we are left in our sin apart from Christ, our existence is a miserable existence of bondage, pain, suffering, and death. And we as well are in need of a deliverer, someone to come and to redeem us. And that Redeemer um, is Christ. He has come and has paid the penalty for our sin. And if we give our allegiance to Him, and if we make ourselves slaves to Christ, it is through Him that we find real freedom from the bondage of sin. And so with, with that as background and context, we pick up in chapter 5, verse 22, and we see Moses' reaction to this first interview with Pharaoh that has not gone as he expected. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So Moses is in a particularly low position as he comes before the Lord here, and you'll notice that there are two issues that he comes to the Lord with, two questions. First, he asks, Why? Why did you do it this way? Why did you bring me here? And why did you bring harm on this people? But then the second thing he says is actually an accusation. And I don't want you to miss that. He accuses the Lord of not keeping his word. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not rescued your people at all. And so, Moses is making an accusation against the Lord that he has not kept his word, that he has not been faithful to do what he promised. Now, if you and I were were sitting in a courtroom and Moses were presenting his case to you and you were the jury, trying to determine whether God was guilty of this claim or not, what would you say? Well, I think we can look at this claim and recognize that Moses is not seeing the whole picture He's not accurately reporting on what God did or what God accomplished. But really, the whole Old Testament is that that scene, that courtroom, where we are called to evaluate God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is a main theme throughout all of the Old Testament, But it's especially true in Exodus as well. If you remember back to our very first week when we talked about Exodus chapter 1, we saw that Exodus 1 functioned as a vindication of God's faithfulness. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham that I will give you a land, a people, and a worldwide blessing. And Abraham died without having any of those things. And so when we pick up in the beginning of Exodus, we see that God is bringing about a nation, a people for Abraham. He is fulfilling that promise to Abraham. And so his faithfulness is vindicated as he goes through Exodus, seeking to also create a land for this nation that he is building as well. And so the issue of God's faithfulness, whether or not God will keep his word, is a key part of the whole Old Testament and especially the book of Exodus. And so Moses puts his finger right on that issue with this accusation and he accuses God of not keeping his word. But you and I, as objective readers, can look at that claim and and recognize that Moses is way off base, right? It's not that God hasn't kept his word. It's not that God hasn't done what he said he would do. What has happened? The only thing that has happened is that God didn't do what Moses wanted him to do. That's the only thing that's happened in this story. God has been the same. God's word has not changed. His promise remains for the people. The thing that has changed is simply that God didn't do what Moses wanted him to do. And so rather than an actual accusation against God, what this is more akin to is a child throwing a fit. You didn't do what I wanted. I wanted you to do it this way, and you didn't do it that way. And so now I'm angry at you because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Think about what Moses is upset about here. God did not perform on the timeline that Moses wanted, and he did not perform with the ease that Moses wanted. Moses expected that his obedience to God would be quick, or that God's deliverance would come in a timely and quick manner, and that it would come with ease. That he would walk into Pharaoh, he would throw down his staff, and Pharaoh would immediately let the people go, right? That's what he expected to happen. And instead, what happened? It wasn't fast, and it wasn't easy. But we notice in our own lives, or or at least I can certainly see in my own life, that these are often things that cause me to question the character of God as well. And so while it can almost be humorous to watch Moses playing out this scene in in his life, it's not humorous to see those things reflected in my own heart and to know that often my relationship with the Lord expresses this same level of frustration with Him for things that are completely um, irrational. There is nothing that causes us to question God's plan and goodness more than hardship or suffering, things not going our way. And so the first thing I want us to do this morning as we look at these concerns that Moses raises is I want to vindicate the faithfulness of God. If you are going through a particularly difficult season, whether it be from health or from finances or from family stress, whatever that might be, don't use that as an opportunity to slander the character of our God. God is good and God is powerful regardless or in spite of the suffering and the pain that you are going through. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. At times, the plan of God ordains for there to be hardship and suffering in our lives, and He uses that to accomplish His glory and His plan." If you think about um, the nation of Israel and and specifically the life of Abraham, right? God, God chose to delay Abraham's fulfillment of that promise until Abraham was 100 years old. And the reason for that was so that Abraham couldn't take credit for that deliverance. There was nothing natural about that baby being born. That was a supernatural miracle so that the only person who would receive the glory and the praise for that was God. And often that's what God is doing in our lives as well. He makes us wait, and He makes us grow in patience, and He makes us grow through hardship so that the only person who receives glory in our lives is God, and so that He receives all of the praise for what He has accomplished and what He is doing. That's exactly what He's doing with the nation of Israel, and Moses has a tough time um, learning that lesson and responding to it. But as we think about this in terms of the whole Old Testament, we look forward to the the narratives in the wilderness, in, in Numbers, where the people are complaining about God and His deliverance and what He has done. And in a sense, they have the exact same complaints that Moses brings, don't they? You're not delivering us as quickly as we wanted. You're not allowing us to have what we want. And we don't like it. And so in a sense, Moses has to learn this lesson now so that he is then prepared to lead the people through the wilderness in numbers. And we're thankful that he learns this lesson now. So, for us who who struggle with God's timing, for us who feel like the Lord has us in a season of difficulty where we are waiting and his plan is not going as we expected, what's the solution? Well, let's look at how God responds to Moses in chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now then, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I the Lord, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, The land in which they lived as strangers. And furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the labors of Egypt and I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses said this to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. So how does the Lord respond to Moses, to the complaints that Moses brings? Well, first, he doesn't respond to the why questions. Did you notice that? He never... Uh, He never stoops to answer why he did something in this way. And that is consistent throughout all of Scripture. Don't ever ask God a why question. He's not obligated to answer you why or to tell you why. So the focus of God's response is actually the accusations that Moses brings. The accusations that God has not kept His word, that He has not been faithful to His people. And so it is those things that that God focuses on, in his response to Moses. So we look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Under compulsion, he will let them go, and under compulsion, he will drive them out of his land. Perhaps your Bibles have a different translation there, maybe one that's a bit more accurate or literal. That phrase, under compulsion, literally means with or by a strong hand. And so the Lord repeats that twice. as as a reminder of what he's going to do to Pharaoh. Now, this is important because it reaffirms that this is God's plan, that he is going to keep this promise to free the nation from the bondage of Egypt. But I think there's something else significant in the use of this phrase. First of all, it is personal. God is intimately involved in freeing the nation from Pharaoh. He is going to accomplish it through his power, and he is actively involved in doing that. But the other thing to notice from that is it is by his strong hand, under his compulsion. What does that mean? That means there is no power strong enough to resist our God. There is no power on the face of this planet that can resist the plan that God has ordained or that God is doing. And so Pharaoh, in all of his might, with all of his power, thinking that he himself is divinity, cannot withstand the plan that God has has ordained. And so this brings us back to what we talked about last week with with the cosmic conflict that's being set up between Pharaoh representing the deities of Egypt and Yahweh representing the deities of the Israelites. And there's this clash that is going to happen, and one will come out of that clash as the real, true, one and only God. And so here we see God making a statement and a promise that that will occur. There is no power on this earth that can withstand his plan and his purpose as it goes forward. So then in verse 2, he says, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as strangers. Now, the, the verse that talks about, I didn't appear to them as Lord, but as God Almighty, uh, we're going to examine that passage on Wednesday night. And so, um, there's, there's a lot of confusion about what that verse means. And so, if you have questions about that or would like more inter- information, I'd invite you to come out on Wednesday night as we discuss that specifically. But what is God doing with this, these couple of verses here as He talks about His name and His relationship to the patriarchs? Well, he's talking about the continuity that exists between the promises that he made to the patriarchs and the promises that he is giving to Moses. And so in a sense, remember, he is vindicating his faithfulness. He is vindicating the fact that those promises he made back then, he is going to deliver on them now. And so there is continuity between the promises he made to the patriarchs and what he is doing for Moses in in the current day. But in a sense, you can almost hear a subtle or gentle rebuke to Moses in this passage, can't you? Moses, these men received a promise from me, and they died without ever receiving or seeing any proof of that promise. They believed in me completely by faith. And yet here you are on the cusp of my deliverance and seeing what I'm going to you, and you don't have enough faith to believe that I can accomplish the promise that I've made to these men. And so there's a vindication of his faithfulness, that those promises he made to those men, even though they didn't witness it or see it, God is bringing through in a different generation to a different group of people. And so God's word is true. God will keep his word and he will do what he says. But there's also something that I think is really significant in these verses as we look at them these aren't new things, there's nothing new in these verses. These are things that Moses has heard over and over and over again. In fact, he probably heard these exact words as a child up until his adult years. These these are some of the most common words in all of Scripture. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will keep my promise to my people. And so I love that fact that of all the things that God could say to Moses, of, of all of the words that could bring him comfort, Of all of the revelation that he could give to Moses at this time, God uses common, old words. He doesn't bring something new to to meet Moses' problem. In fact, he appeals to something old, something that has been true for for thousands of years, that he is a God who has made these promises to his people, and in those words, Moses finds comfort. Ooh, sorry. Sorry. And so if we think about that in in light of what's happening, what is changing and causing Moses to question his relationship with the Lord are his circumstances. God's word hasn't changed, God's character hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is Moses' circumstances. And as he engages with those circumstances which are changing, they cause him to question God, to question his word and his character. And what God does is to bring Moses back to the unchanging nature of his word. Brings him back to the fact that his word never changes. His word is always true. And in new circumstances and new situations, we find comfort in those old words that have always been true. And I think that is true in our own lives as well. We find comfort for the daily stress and the struggles that we have. Do I need to do anything, Andrew? Okay, sorry. I'll stand still, maybe. Okay. Um, So as we deal with changing circumstances and difficulty, we find comfort in the old words of Scripture. We don't need new revelation. We don't need new things from God. In fact, we need to know the old words new and to find ongoing truth and encouragement in what God has already said. So, as as God goes on from there, notice what he says in verses 5 and on. "'Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel, because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, "'I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and then I will take you as my people.'" And I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the labors of Egypt. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Did you notice what was repeated throughout that section over and over again? I am. I will. God's entire uh, section is focused on what he is going to do for the people. These are all things that I'm going to do for you, always that I'm going to fulfill this promise. You just need to wait and to watch me act. But the other thing we hear repeated throughout there is three or four different times Yahweh says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now, why is that an important thing for him to repeat as he goes through this passage? Well, in a sense, the things that he is claiming to be able to do, freeing the people, delivering them from their bondage, are only possible if he is God. If he has the power of divinity, then he can do those things. And so the claim, I am the Lord, backs up or supports all the things that he says he is going to do. And so if we think about that on the flip side of that, What we look to in this life to redeem us or to deliver us in moments of hardship and trial are the things that we have ascribed divinity to. And so it is only those sorts of things that have the power of divinity in our lives. So whatever we ascribe the power to free us and deliver us, those are the things that we view as divine or having the power to save And so here God claims that once again. And so we're back to the conflict, the conflict between God or Yahweh and the other gods of the universe. Which one will you turn to and which one will be able to deliver you and which will you turn for salvation? So that's the Lord's response to Moses's accusations. Are you going to keep your word? Are you going to be faithful? And God reminds him that he is the faithful God, the God of the Old Testament. He reminds him of the truths they've always known and confessed, and he reaffirms the promise that he's going to make. So then the Lord commissions Moses again. We hear Moses' accusation, we hear God's response to him, and then we hear what God asks him to do. And this has to be one of my favorite portions of Scripture. Because at this point, what Moses was expecting was God to say, yeah, I know it's really hard. I know that they're not listening to you. Why don't you just take a seat? Why don't you take a break? Let somebody else carry the torch for a while. That's what he's hoping for. But what does God do? God says, yeah, I know it's not going well. I know it's really hard. But go right back. Go right back to the nation of Israel and tell them these words. Go right back to Pharaoh and tell them these words. Nothing has changed. He gives Moses the exact Same command that he is supposed to do. Moses brings these complaints and concerns to the Lord, and the Lord says, in essence, I hear you, but you still have to go. You still have to do this thing. And so he goes to the Israelites. Moses said to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord and said, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. And nevertheless, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a command concerning the sons of Israel and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so Moses goes right back to where he was fleeing from. God doesn't give him any room. He says, this is what you need to do. But look at the reaction that he gives or the response that he gives to the Lord's command. Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me, but how then will Pharaoh listen to me as I am unskilled in speech? Now, did God's first command to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go, did that command have anything in it about listening? No, no, there wasn't anything in it about listening. He just said, go tell Pharaoh these words. And so Moses introduces the fact that Pharaoh won't listen to him as an excuse or a reason for him not to go. But God's God's command didn't say, go and talk to Pharaoh as long as he listens to you or so that he listens to you. But his command was just go tell Pharaoh. Whether he listens to you or not is not important to your obedience, what is important is simply that you obey what I say and that you go and you report the message faithfully that I've given you to say. And so this is a classic example of, we, of what we like to do whenever God gives us a command or asks us to obey him. We insert things and excuses and qualifications that get us out of the obedience. And it sounds really good, doesn't it? I already did this once. Pharaoh didn't listen to me the first time. Why would I bother and waste my time doing it again? But again, that's not what the Lord has told Moses to do. All that the Lord has said is go and tell Pharaoh these words and this message. And I think it's a wonderful reminder for us as we walk with the Lord to to remove those qualifications, those restrictions to our obedience, and to embrace a wholehearted walk with him and love for him. The bottom line with what Moses has done here is he has introduced concern about results into his willingness to obey. So he's only willing to obey if the results are good. And God says, the results are in my hand. Whether Pharaoh listens to me or not is my job. Your job is just to tell. Your job is just to obey what I've asked you to do. And I need you to leave the results in my hands. That's a wonderful reminder for us as we seek to obey. So often we get concerned about the results. We get concerned about the big picture things that we can't control. And that keeps us from doing the little things that God has called us to. And the things where we can obey and be faithful in what he has asked us to do. So then uh, the chapter finishes out and we'll read verses 14 through 27. Just to finish out this, this section. So these are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jashin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. And the sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath, Amran, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. And the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. And these are the families of the Levites according to their generations. Now Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron And Moses, and the length of Amram's life was 137 years. And the sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. And Aaron married Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, Abishaph, and these are the families of the Korahites. Now, Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. And these are the heads of the father's household of the Levites, according to their families. Now, verse 26 and 27 are key. It was the same Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their multitudes. And they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron." So what point is Moses trying to get by inserting this genealogy? Now, it's a heavily redacted genealogy, right? Not only does it not go through all 12 tribes, it just does a very brief look at Reuben, a very brief look at Simeon, and then a long version of Levi. But uh, it's also very focused in Levi's family on Moses and Aaron and their descendants. Well, there's a couple of key players in this genealogy. And you may be those of you who have read through the Old Testament, you've probably recognized some of those names. We hear Korah mentioned, who famously rebels against Moses in the wilderness. We hear Phineas mentioned, who is famous for his zeal at Bel Peor, and became a leader in the time of the judges. And so as Moses is compiling this genealogy and recording it here. He's pulling on all of this history and all of these things that are to come for the nation as they look forward to going into the wilderness and being freed. And so in a sense, for those of us who are reading this account, we understand that God is going to keep his promise based on this genealogy. What is recorded in this genealogy presupposes that the people are going to be freed, they're going to be released, and there's going to be this whole history that happens to this nation that we're not even aware of at this moment as we read through this story. And so the genealogy itself vindicates the promises that God has made, that these things are going to come and will be happening. But the other thing that genealogies do is they always provide identity. And so when we think about the genealogies of Christ in the New Testament, they give us the identity of Christ. They orient him in his his family. And so Moses and Aaron are doing the same thing here except they're doing it in contrast. They're revealing their family history, but what they do in verses 26 and 27 is reveal that their key identity was found in their relationship with God. So their family history, where they came from, who their father was, who they married, all of that, was subservient to the fact that they were called of God and they were used by Him to free His people. And so in the same way, our genealogies are flipped on its head. We don't derive our identity from our families or from who we come from, but we derive our identity from the fact that we are called by God to be his children and to be a part of his family. And so all of this comes full circle as Moses thinks about, as he's writing this, as he thinks about the frustration and the discouragement that he feels at this point in the story, having been frustrated by Pharaoh's reaction to him and feeling like this cause is is worthless where does he find comfort and find hope in the fact that he was chosen by God to lead the people and to be a part of his family and his nation and so for those of us who face today a similar trial and struggle who face hardship and suffering i'd encourage you to find your hope and encouragement in the same place that Moses and Aaron do Not in your abilities, not in your family or your pedigree, but find your comfort in the God who called you, and the God who has a plan for your life, and the God who has made you a part of his family. So with that, we prepare for going before the Lord's table, and so would you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for, for that time. Father, we do thank you for this word, a word that is profoundly encouraging this morning showing us how you work in our lives, how you work in those who are your children, and how you have called us to be a part of your family. Lord, for those of us who are facing difficult circumstances, trial, and hardship today, I pray that we would find comfort um, in in your identity that you've given us, in the fact that we are a part of your family, and we derive our identity from you and what you have done for us on the cross. So Lord, as we end with that thought today, and we turn our attention to the Lord's table, we celebrate this as a recognition of your sacrifice and of the salvation that you've purchased on our behalf, and we remember your faithfulness, the fact that this, uh, this ordinance looks back to your faithfulness in the past, and it reminds us what you currently do for us, and then it helps us to look forward, to anticipate um, the fulfillment of your final promise to us. So, Lord, help us to ground ourselves in that reality today as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name. Amen.